0: travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm a journalist. I am here with my co-host, Helen Bond, Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, welcome to season two of Biblical Time Machine. How do you feel?
1: Hi, Dave. It's great to be back, and I'm really excited. We've got some really good guests. I mean, you know, season one was good, but these are a stellar group of, <laughs> of scholars and people to talk to. So yeah, I'm ready to get behind the controls again.
0: Yeah. Start refamiliarizing yourself with all the buttons. Yeah, um, in the meantime, we do want to, um, tell you about some, some exciting things that have happened in our, in our off season between season one and season two, we have a new partner. We have partnered with this incredible website, Bible Odyssey. Um, I don't know if you guys have, been over to BibleOdyssey.com, but they have been doing what we're trying to do for a long time, where they're trying to educate the public on sort of the history and cultural, you know, lore and significance of all these biblical topics that we talk about on the podcast. So we're working with Bible Odyssey. They're, we're going to send you guys links to, to cool articles over there that you can learn more about our topics, and they're going to link to our podcasts on their website. So, welcome Bible Odyssey to the Biblical Time Machine family. And we're excited <laughs> to be to be working with those guys. And Helen, we we have something else for our listeners that we want to remind them about that they could they could join what we're calling the Time Travelers Club. Are you a member of the Time Travelers Club, Helen?
1: I don't think I am yet. I would better, yeah, you better, better sign get up. joining quickly. You have to send me the details.
0: <laughs> so, the Time Travelers Club is is an opportunity to support the show through Patreon. You could you could throw us a couple dollars and, and we really appreciate it. And in return, you get access to bonus content. We're gonna be putting out little bits from every episode that that are only for our Time Travelers Club members. And also, you get the opportunity to ask your questions to our guests. So we will be posting upcoming recording sessions, upcoming dates you know what the episode's about who we're having on and if you're in the time travelers club you could email us a question and we will ask it to those guests on the air we will say your name and uh i think this is really cool i i hope people take advantage of it you could record your question you could record a little audio clip email it to us and we will play the question on the air i think that'll be fun so
1: that would be really nice, actually. I think so, really, hear, really good to hear people, yeah, hear other people, too. Hear
0: from our listeners. So the links are all in the show description to Bible Odyssey, to the Time Travelers Club. Please check it out. But okay, Ellen, we we got to get to today's guest and today's episode.
1: Because mm, this is a good one.
0: This is a good one. So we are going way back in time today. We are going to go pre-Bible, way back to try to figure out how a God named Yahweh a lowercase g, god of the Edomites and the Canaanites, got elevated to become the one and only god of Judaism, of Christianity, of Islam. It's a fascinating story, and we have a great guest to help walk us through this. We have Francesca Stavrakopoulou. She's professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient religion at the University of Exeter, and she wrote an incredible book called God and Anatomy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's a, it's great a great title, job. isn't it?
0: So, let's, uh, let's get to our conversation about how Yahweh became God. Well, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, welcome to Biblical Time Machine.
2: Thank you for having me
0: um congratulations on the book it's won awards it's getting great reviews that must feel awesome
2: yeah it feels surprising as well (laughs) you know when when you're an academic you write stuff and you expect only like three other people in the world to like read it but like so it was it was daunting writing this volume for for kind of um non-specialist but kind of interested readers so i'm really chuffed that it's done so well yeah
0: and for for americans like myself chuffed is a good thing chuffed is a positive (laughs) oh yeah it sounds like you could be mad i'm chuffed no chuffed is good okay
2: yeah chuffed is jolly good
1: (laughs) (laughs) awesome um
0: well how i mean and helen what both of you you guys write books how does this happen like how do you decide you know what is going to be worth a book length treatment i mean it's such like you say i mean it's such an investment of your time and energy like how do you know like this is what i want to work on for the next so many I don't years know.
1: that you just get sort of an idea in the back of your head that um, you just think you know it's more than an article an article is normally just sort of you know one kind of idea that one one little argument you want to get out there but but a book is a it's a longer exploration it's a few things pulled together and I don't know yeah you just have something in the back of your head you think next time I get a little bit of leave maybe <laughs> I'm gonna work on that and you know hope that something comes out of it but and yeah. what about you Francesca is it similar yeah I think it's normally when there's like a question or if
2: I'm curious about something mm. and you just think I really want to find out more about this I mean this is why most of us are academics anyways because we mm. never wanted to stop learning and and you just want to find out and I find writing a very creative process intellectually as well it's amazing how your ideas
1: shift and change as you're actually writing Um, exactly you work out whether something is going to work or not and the argument uh, an argument that works in your head suddenly you write it down and you think oh that's not not quite going the way I thought it would
0: I don't know. I mean, I'm look. Yeah. I'm curious about a lot of things, but I'm not like I'm going to write a whole book about it. So I, I'm just I'm impressed. <laughs> I congratulate.
1: Once you've done one, is that it? It's kind of it's easier. like children, right? Yeah. It's like if you've had, you know, you yeah. could have
0: multiple children. Hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. All right. Well, if you guys have any like
0: really good ideas and no time to write something, just. just uh, I'll buy it from you for like five dollars, and i
1: Five dollars is that? What I don't expect famous? to make My more God. than ten dollars
0: selling it. So.
1: True, true. All
0: right, well let's let's get to our topic. We're talking about how to lowercase g God become capital G God, and of course we're talking about Yahweh. So, all right, let's let us get in the time machine. Let us travel super far back to the beginning, uh, Francesca. When, where, where, and when do scholars think that we first kind of encounter uh, Yahweh, this God called Yahweh?
2: Well, it depends who you're talking to. I I'm mean, talking basically, to you. the short right. answer is okay, we don't know. Okay. We really don't know. So, the earliest kind of evidence, perhaps evidence that we have, is like late Bronze Age. There's a couple of references in Egyptian texts to a, a name, Yahoo. Um, But it doesn't seem to be a divine name Hmm. in these texts. It seems really to be a place name, so a geographical name. And quite often, sometimes divine beings and um, other sorts of supernatural, otherworldly beings could take on the name of a place. Hmm. Um, So maybe that's one of our earliest attestations. But really, when we're thinking about it, the God Yahweh only really emerges probably in the late Bronze Age. So we're talking, you know, pre Pre twelve hundred, only just pre twelve hundred BCE.
0: 1200 BC, yeah.
2: So, you know, he's kind of he's kind of a, a newcomer, a late mm. in the in within the ancient world in terms of deities. What, the new what, kid on the block.
1: <laughs> what does the name mean then? Do we know anything about Again? <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so it may be
2: uh that within these Egyptian texts, if this is a place name, it could mean that it derives from an Egyptian verb that means something like wandering or passing through mm. but that doesn't seem to be the way in which the name is understood within Hebrew text so within the Hebrew bible or what Christians call the old testament what Jewish people call tanakh um the only kind of explanation of the name yahweh that seems to be given occurs in exodus and there yahweh says something like i am that i am mm. and so the biblical writer is trying to encourage the reader to think that there's a link between the name yahweh and the verb to be mm. Um, so could it be, I am that, you know, I am this being, I exist, mm-hmm. I am, or I will be, but we don't know. Um, and so that's, you know, there's two very frustrating things about the early career of God <laughs> is that we don't know where he came from and we don't know what his name means. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> right, well good stuff. We've struck out on the
0: first two <laughs> oh, Okay, give me, how about, okay, once he, once he does, once we do have some evidence of this God emerging, I, I've seen, you know, they they say like Canaanite deity, like, is that accurate? Like uh, what, what part of the world and place that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, so basically, it would seem that from a lot of the oldest texts that we have in the Hebrew Bible, it would appear that Yahweh seems to be particularly associated with a southern territory. So probably in the region that's known in the Bible as Edom, which is what we would know today as southern Jordan. Hmm. It looks to be that kind of area. Some scholars argued that perhaps he came from and more con- sort of more into the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps there's not enough strong evidence. But certainly most of the oldest texts in the Hebrew Bible say that this is a God that came from this southern desert-like wilderness area. Um, so probably southern Jordan today, which I kind of like. I like the idea that he's this kind of southern sort of outsider God. Hmm. And that's the key thing. This is a God who is said to have originated outside of the land, hmm. known as Israel and Judah in the Bible. Just like his people in the story that we're told in the Hebrew Bible, his people end up going in and out of the Mm. land all the time. So the idea of Yahweh as an outsider, I think, has historical roots, I'd have thought, but also kind of plays an ideological role that, like his own people, Yahweh is also Mm. an outsider who comes into this land.
0: Cool. Mm. So, like, so Edomite is is maybe more accurate than Canaanite if we're going to give him a. A place.
2: Yeah, I mean the word the word Canaan is really tricky because it's used in the Bible to refer to the the, the territory that we identify today as like the southern Levant. So basically, modern day Israel, Palestinian territories, um, bits of Lebanon sometimes we included in that, Jordan. Um, but but Canaanite is, is a, again it's a very loaded term. It's used in a very polemical way in the biblical text that the Canaanites are these kind of deviant mm. indigenous peoples in this land that need to be wiped so. out in order for Yahweh and his people to come into the land. Mm. So if we talk about, really, we're talking about a Southern Levantine culture. Um, so he's definitely a Southern Levantine God. Um, and there were lots of Southern Levantine gods. So gods that we know from so-called Canaanite systems, polytheistic systems, like the god El, like the god Baal, like the mm. goddess Anat. So they're all a part of this broader cultural landscape. And Yahweh appears to have been one of them. So
1: this, this one... Baal or Baal or however you say it. Um, what, what what's the proper way to say it? Baal. Um, Baal.
2: Baal. Uh, if you, Baal. If you want
1: to put, a, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> want to look like you know Hebrew. Baal. So 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 tell us about him because he he's one of the bad guys, isn't he? And and he has there's clearly worshippers of Baal in in the Hebrew Bible, but he's 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 not the one to associate yourself with, is he? And what what do we know about him? And is he one of Yahweh's buddies or is he? How does how do they Related. So, if we're thinking about the story that's being told of the religious past, Baal is
2: absolutely a baddie. He is a mm. foreign god. Ooh. He is um, his worshippers are polytheistic. Um, they're kind of unsophisticated. They're very. Um, they're dangerous. They're, they're deviant. They perform all sorts of abhorrent practices: child sacrifice and <gasps> goddess worship and worshiping the dead and all the fun stuff, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but historically speaking. Baal I mean the term simply means lord um, so in the same way that in Babylonia Marduk could be called Bel which is the same same word Lord Marduk so any god could theoretically have this title of Baal of Lord but so Baal Hadad um, is the form that we find in the Levant and Baal Hadad is basically a storm deity he's a warrior deity one of the most important deities and he could take different forms in different sort of cultural locations and and have slightly different names but he is a dude um so in Ugarit which is a late bronze age city-state on the coast of Syria on the Mediterranean coast of Syria we've got lots of information from the myth- mythological text there and Baal is the patron deity of this city-state he's incredibly important he's a god of fertility a god of warfare he's a patron deity of kings um so it looks like a lot of the polemic that we have in the Bible about Baal is basically that Baal seems to perform a lot of the same functions that Yahweh performs. Yahweh's a storm god. Yahweh's a fertility god. Yahweh's a warrior god. Yahweh's a patient deity.
1: So that's probably where the competition comes from. And Baal's a bigger deal, is he then? Is he sort of more widely worshipped and he's yeah, he's kind of like a big guy? Right, right.
2: Yeah. And Baal was the son um, in Ugaritic mythology. So often known as Canaanite mythology, Baal was um, the son, one of the sons of the high god Ael, and his name Ael simply means deity or god. Um, and so Baal was like a really important kind of—he's like a frontline deity. Ael was like this kind of semi-retired, <laughs> older patriarch of the heavens, you know, sitting with his feet up. But Baal was kind of your frontline deity, and Yahweh seems to have played a similar sort of role in what we might think of as an early Israelite pantheon. So. We've got some text in the Bible, including um, due to a text in Deuteronomy 32, that suggests that Eil was originally the high god of the Israelite pantheon, and that Yahweh was kind of like a, a second-generation, lower-tier mm-hmm. deity. So Yahweh had a dad, the god Eil.
0: Wow. Okay, so you're mm-hmm. so you're saying in Deuter, so yeah, I mean, I I want to look that up right now, but it's so there. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it really subtle, or is it kind of like when you read it, is it pretty clear that like here's there's this relationship between these two gods?
2: Yeah, the text makes reference. It talks about when the high god Ale apportioned, um, he's called Eleon, which means the highest or the most high. But but most scholars agree this is an epithet for the high god Ale. When he apportioned the nations, when he divided up humankind into different sorts of peoples and territories, um, it says that Jacob, which is the name another name for Israel, was Yahweh's allotted portion. Hmm. So he divides up. And the text says that he divides the territories and peoples up, the high God. He divides them up um, between the sons of Ail, the sons of hmm. God. And Yahweh, who we, we infer from the text, is, is one of these sons of God. Is given the territory wow. and the people Jacob or Israel. So it's a, it's a, it's it's very well accepted by scholars that yeah, this looks like a an echo, like a fossil, a fossilized yeah. relic of an older Israelite pantheon.
0: Hmm. Wow. So I mean, is that kind of the type of evidence we have to work with? Like when we're trying to figure out how did the Israelites, I mean, we we could just kind of call them the ancient, you know, how did the ancient Israelites end up? adopting yahweh as as their kind of high god do we have any clues as to that process
2: yeah um the clues i think are basically the ways in which our evidence you know where does our evidence come from and we have only you know relatively few hebrew inscriptions from we're now in the iron age so we know that by by around the 9th century bce we know that we've got the kingdom of israel in the north with its capital um its biggest capital was samaria and the kingdom of Judah in the south with its capital Jerusalem. And it looks like we know that some of the kings that reigned in these capitals, um, we've got evidence of them in Assyrian and Babylonian texts. And a lot of them, their names are, are what we call theophoric names. So in other words, they have like the name Christopher is a theophoric name because the word Christ is the divine element within that name. So we know that from the theophoric elements in a lot of these royal names that Yahweh seems to be so, Hezekiah, For example, Mm. the Yah on the end is the abbreviated form of Yahweh. Mm. You find the same thing with like the prophet Isaiah, Elijah. It's it's Yah at Mm. the end is is Yahweh's name. So we can see that among these high-status political establishment figures, that Yahweh seems to have been the most important deity because a lot of these kings and other elites have got have carry his name in their own name. So it looks like just as Baal was a patron deity of the elites within the city of Ugarit, for example. So Yahweh increasingly seems to have become the patron deity of these high status societies, you know, the royal lineages and kings of Israel and Judah. So, probably, I suspect what happens is that as you kind of get the emergence of these states, um, political systems rely on not just having a national god, but having a deity who is your own patron deity. Mm. I am a king, and who is my patron deity? my patron deity is Yahweh. And so that kind of patronage gradually applies, I think, to broader sweeps of constructs of of a national identity. And gradually other gods, they're still around, but they don't play as important a political role as Yahweh does. So that's how he sort of starts to climb up the ranks of the pantheon, I think.
1: And so if 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 Yahweh has a father then, and does he have does he have any other relatives? Does he have a, a wife, perhaps? Or <laughs> I like your question. Yes, he does. <laughs> yeah, we Where think she come Yahweh
2: Well Yahweh we think had a wife. And in the Hebrew Bible, um, we find her name repeated over 40 times. Her name is Asherah, mm. and Asherah is the Hebrew version of the name Atherat, and Atherat is the name of this really incredibly important very long-lived goddess known throughout the levant um mm-hmm. and athirat is the wife and consort of the high god ale and she's also the mother of the gods um and she's also this she's called a creatrix or a female creator in her own right she seems to have been a really important um mythological figure but we have lots of references to Asher in the hebrew bible but they're all very polemical so we've got references you know with Yahweh or Moses telling the Israelites, do not put this cult symbol of Asherah next to the altar of Yahweh your God. We're told that certain idolatrous kings of Jerusalem put a statue of Asherah in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Mm. So there's admissions they were that doing it. Yeah, Asherah was being worshipped yeah. alongside Yahweh. And then in the 1970s and 80s, um, some inscriptions, Hebrew inscriptions, were found dating to about the 8th century BCE that pair Yahweh and Asherah. They talk about Yahweh and his Asherah. And so it seems that historically, Asherah was most likely understood to be the consort of Yahweh, and she was an important goddess in her own right as well. But the biblical writers, these texts have been written much, much later, Mm. and they've been kind of reworked and edited. And so she's become this kind of vilified goddess. She's another dangerous foreign. Well, clearly, um, I mean,
0: clearly they broke up. And God was like, I don't want to hear about her anymore. You got to take her off yeah. of my I altar. Mean, mm.
2: This is the problem with monotheism. As monotheism emerges, and we think it probably doesn't begin to emerge until the 6th century BC when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The problem with monotheism, A, it's not a very great label for us. It's a very problematic label. Mm. I think pantheon reduction would be a better mm. kind of term to use. <laughs> And the problem with pantheon reduction is that Yahweh, you know, he becomes increasingly intolerant of other gods and goddesses. But what he does is he takes on the kind of the portfolios of each god and goddess. Mm. So Asherah was particularly associated with mediating blessings. She was particularly associated with looking after the well-being of households and families. Mm. And Yahweh starts to take on all these roles for himself. And as a result, you know, these kind of memories, cultural memories of her legitimate worship Begin to be tarnished and reworked and, and kind of downgraded. Um, so Yahweh ends up becoming this very jealous de- deity who is completely intolerant of any other gods and goddesses, even those that you know members of his own family. Members of his own family.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think what we're what we're saying here, and and I, I want to take uh, the position of our listener for a second, who might, who might, uh, their mouth might be hanging open. I mean, it seems very clear from you know at least our best scholarly evidence that you know the ancient israelites were polytheistic just like everyone else around them for a very long time that that you know we always talk about it here on the podcast so if you read the bible and you start at the beginning it's very clear there's one god and he you know he says that off the top Mm -hmm. but like you're saying when you find the oldest parts of the bible or these echoes of these ancient belief systems yeah, I mean, of course they had many gods, and 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 that, that's a very cool description, kind of pantheon reduction. <laughs> like they they had a whole bunch, yeah. Over time, I mean, and we keep saying, you know, Yahweh himself was the one who pushed out the other gods, but it's the authors of these texts that decide we're not going to mention these other gods anymore for their own reasons, right? I mean that and that develops. Yeah,
2: it's the priest, it's the priestly and scribal groups who have a kind of a monopoly on. Certain forms of social and political power who were reworking these tradition traditions, rewriting these texts in the light of their own experience. I mean, exile was horrific. You know, the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in the sixth century BC by the Babylonians. A lot of the elites were taken off to Mesopotamia. Their whole their whole belief system, their whole worldview, has has completely changed. You know, is Yahweh really our patron deity? Uh, why has this happened? He must be a really weak god. No, no, no. He can't be a weak god. He must have done this on purpose. So why has he done it? He's done it to punish us. What are we being punished for? We're being punished for various things, including maybe worshipping other Mm -hmm. gods. How come he could use the Babylonians as his instrument of punishment? Ah, he must have some kind of international reach. You know, he's not just confined to his own territory. He must have some kind of international reach. Well, how come he's got that? Well, because he's a creator god. He created everybody and everything. Ah, therefore, he must be the most important Mm -hmm. god. He must Mm -hmm. be the only god. Mm -hmm. So you can see how theologically it kind of works out. But even if you were to read the beginning of the Bible, so Genesis is not the earliest book in the Mm. Bible, but everyone kind of assumes it is because it's at the start. But even when you read the very beginning of the Bible, you find lots of references in the creation stories in Genesis with Yahweh saying, let us make man in our own image. These plurals, this is not a plural of majesty. This is not Margaret Thatcher, the British prime minister, (laughs) saying we are a grandmother when her, her grandchild was born. This is a reference to what we know as the divine council, so yahweh was the head of a of a collection of gods a divine assembly that met together and and this collection of deities made decisions about what was going on in the heavenly realm and the earthly realm so already in in genesis chapters 1 2 and 3 you've got lots of references to this collection of deities mm. so even the bible itself even though it's saying oh yeah you know there is only one god oh but by the way, look at all these other references, mm. all these other deities in his retinue. Wow! So yeah, you, they were polytheistic.
1: Do you think that um, you know what, what about ordinary people? Because the 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 Hebrew scriptures are only giving us the the, the mm. sort of elite side of things, aren't they? I mean, do you think ordinary people are continuing to worship these gods? I'm thinking particularly something like Asherah, the female deity. Do you think Do you think women all over Israel have have you know a little shrine or something? How widespread I, do you yeah. think that was?
2: I suspect so. I suspect that different forms of polytheism continued well into the Roman era. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think in a way, I think it's very hard to kind of credit just one deity as being the only deity. So even in those texts, in the in elite you know, Hebrew Bible passages that, that sort of insist that there is only one God, they don't deny the existence of other gods, that yeah. everyone's aware that there are mm-hmm. other gods and that other people worship other gods. It's just that we choose only to worship Yahweh. But as Helen, you know, as you rightly say, these are elite texts and they're they're not of majority view. So I suspect, I mean, archaeologically, it's quite hard to find solid proof of anything, (laughs) of anything in this period. But yeah, most scholars would agree that polytheism in some form continues, Um, you know, earliest Christianity looks very
1: polytheistic to me. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. That's what I was thinking. You know, the, the, exactly the same problems or, or at mm. least a, a version of this problem is is also there in, in the New Testament world. I mean, you know... People just say it's they're monotheistic, but they're they're clearly aware of other gods, and even if they're not the ones that they're worshiping, they're aware of the power of these other gods and and yeah. you do you do wonder you know whether 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 people have their own shrines to other deities just because they've worked quite well for them in the past
2: I think so, and I think a really good example is so you know. 6th century BCE Jerusalem temples destroyed by the Babylonians and you know 50 years ago scholars would have said that's it that's when monotheism emerges Mm -hmm. but even 100 years later in the 5th century BCE when supposedly monotheism monotheistic Yahweh worship is the norm we've got texts from Elephantini which um, is an island in the Nile where we know there are a lot of um Yahweh worshippers' base and lots of other foreigners as well. And in a lot of these texts, we've got things like divorce contracts and kind of shopping lists and letters being written from, there was a temple of Yahweh on the island of Elephantini in the 5th century BCE. And the priests of that temple are writing to the priests of the Jerusalem temple, asking them for sponsorship to help them repair their temple. Mm. So from these documents on Elephantini, we can see that Yahweh worshippers with Yahwistic names are... Taking vows within a legal context, but also vowing by lots of other foreign mm-hmm. gods as well, not just Yahweh. Yeah. So, you know, the, the reality is that the Hebrew Bible gives us a very distorted view of what the historical reality was. And actually, Elephantini shows us that even in the fifth century BCE, supposedly the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the imposition of the Torahs, regulations on Yahweh worshippers, you shall have only one God. That's doesn't that's not operating. <laughs> In mm. Elephantini, when the Torah says you shall have worship Yahweh in only one place, you know by implication mm. of the Jerusalem Temple. That's not happening because we've got a temple in Elephantini to Yahweh, and those priests are very happily in correspondence mm. Mm. with the priests from Jerusalem. So, and the,
1: the reality is very later, So, so yeah, I mean, there's 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 frequently a time yeah. when there's more than one temple. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'll,
0: I'll, Helen. We got to do an episode on this Elephantini, and we we have to. <laughs> we've mentioned it a few yeah. times, and then every time I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's right!" Like there was more than one yeah, temple. Yeah, yeah, we should crazy. do something on that. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's and Thomas, we could cool. do an episode on on the other temples. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um. Okay. All right. well you're booked, Francesca? <laughs> yeah, she's, she's coming back. <laughs> we um. All right. I I had a I had a question, and this this was this harkens back to like names. So like the names of God, because. I don't know. I remember being a kid so I grew up Jewish and I remember somebody saying to me like, mm. "Oh, you guys worship Jehovah." And I was like, "Jehovah? Like what are you even talking about?" Because I'd never heard <laughs> that word. And I never heard this word Yahweh, right? And which is maybe someone else would have said, "Oh yeah, the Jewish people worship Yahweh." Because we don't, you know, Jewish people don't pronounce this name of God. So, you know, mm. it's written in mm. Hebrew phonetically it, it it you would sound it out like Yahweh, but we don't say that. You say Adonai, which is like Lord. Anyway, do we think, I guess you're saying there had these names in ancient times that referenced Yahweh, Mm. so there probably wasn't a prohibition against saying his name, or do we have any idea?
2: Yeah, I mean, it would seem that, um, you know, from the inscriptions that we have in the 8th century BC for example, that would suggest that people are using that name, you know, and these include kind of graffiti Mm. inscriptions too, so it suggests that, that, you know, that people were comfortable with the name itself, but we do know that by about the 3rd century BCE, which is when the Hebrew, a lot of these Hebrew texts are being translated into Greek, into the, the form of the setric, as, as we call it, those Greek translations, which seem to have been produced starting in the 3rd century BCE, they're avoiding using mm-hmm. the name Yahweh. So it does suggest that there seems to be some kind of aversion to pronouncing it. Because don't forget, these texts were not written to be read in, their, in our heads, in people's heads. Mm-hmm. They were written to be read aloud. Mm-hmm. So by avoiding the name Yahweh or, you know, sort of transliterating it into Greek, it looks like there's a a reluctance to say the name out loud. And partly that's because names are very, very powerful, particularly different gods and goddesses names. They can be used in powerful incantations Mm. against your enemies. They can be used to cast a spell on you. Um, And we know that even mythological stories from other cultures, there are lots of stories where gods use power, power words and power names to create Mm. To both to create bad as well as to create good. So there seems to have been this, from the earliest, it seems to be the third century BCE, that's when we start to see this shift away from saying Yahweh out loud and saying instead said, Adonai, so my Lord, or saying um, Hashem, the mm, name, mm. instead of actually saying the word Yahweh. But I think because it was so, it almost becomes a name that's too sacred for human lips to, mm. to pronounce.
0: Oh, and while we're on the topic, because you talked about, you know, in, in Genesis, you know, let us create them in our image so of course in the in the hebrew text in the hebrew bible you have two names forgot right you have this elohim word which is like mm. a, a very clearly plural word and then you know the mm. adonai word like is that just another example for people that like we're talking about a polytheistic kind of situation or do we have an expl- another, another explanation for this elohim name
2: yeah, I mean as you say it's Elohim is a plural word that means gods or deities and sometimes it can kind of mean divine as mm. well. Um but it does seem to be used in the Hebrew Bible in certain texts with singular verbs so it's a plural yeah. noun being used with singular verbs so it suggests that it's being almost like the word you know like scissors is actually a plural but we use mm. it we often use it as a as a singular. So it's a similar kind of thing and that looks like that too might reflect it might reflect uh, a priestly concern um, with not saying this powerful name, Yahweh, mm. allowed too much because it's too powerful. I mean, but that's certain groups. I mean, when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can see there the divine name is written. Yahweh is written. But sometimes it's written in a different color ink. Hmm. Sometimes it's written in a different kind of script. So, again, it shows that there's this kind of magic that surrounds this word. Mm. It's a, a special word. Um, But yeah, so we may have earlier evidence of some groups, particularly priestly groups, trying to avoid the name, saying the name aloud, um, just because it's too precious. You can say it in certain sorts of prayers, but perhaps not in narratives, Mm. not in
1: stories. So can we get onto God's body? Mm. Because I know this is this is a large part of what you've been writing about lately. I mean the, the idea, the sort of traditional idea that, that we have in, in Christian circles and Jewish and, and, and Islam too is that, you know, God has no body, he can't be mm. represented in any way, he can't have images or anything. But 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 you found lots of references to, to God's body, haven't you? Right right from the start.
2: Yeah, I mean, all the way through the Hebrew Bible, um, we've got references to God's body and different body parts. I mean, things like you've got stories where Moses goes up Mount Sinai with some of the elders of Israel and um, and they talk about and they look up and they can see um, God's, you know, it says under God's feet. You know, the, the <laughs> it was like a pavement of, of lapis mm. lazuli or sapphire. Um, you've got references, obviously, to God's hand. We've got references to um, God's nose, like the nose was the organ of anger. So God oh. talks about his nose getting hot and running with anger. Where is that? All in Isaiah. Oh, right. Psalms. I, I like, yeah, that all part. over the place. <laughs> references, you know, God in Jeremiah, God talks about having belly aches and belly pains because he's really worried and anxious. Um, so we have all sorts of references to different body parts. I mean, but even, you know, some examples where Again, someone like Moses or Abraham, you know, Abraham goes for a walk with, um, with with Yahweh in the Garden of Eden. We're told that Yahweh was walking in the garden and Adam could hear the sound of him coming. Um, Moses is said to have talked to Yahweh, says, you know, I talked to Moses um, mouth to mouth, face to face, like one talks to a friend. So there's loads of different references. So the biblical writers themselves, very comfortable with the idea that God had a body. The thing is that this was a body that couldn't always be seen. That's the big thing. So an unseen body is not the same thing as a non-existent Mm. body. And I think people often confuse that. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there was very, it was very much understood in the ancient world that gods generally had human shaped bodies or that humans had God shaped bodies. (laughs) That's what makes our relationship with the gods so special. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes our relationship so with the gods so different from other creatures. You know, we don't have four legs and tails and various other things. We are God shaped. Um and that's what Genesis one is saying, let us make man in our own image. This is about, you know, this is why we look the way we do, because that's not a kind of a spiritual correspondence um within this Hebrew text. It's not about some kind of spiritual likeness or moral, ethical likeness mm. to God. This is about, yeah, we've got human shaped bodies. Um yeah. and so yeah. yeah, God's body is 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 absolutely all over the Hebrew Bible. <laughs>
1: But is is there any evidence that there ever were sort of um, artistic representations of it? Or,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in the Ten Commandments, for example, you know, you've got, you know, Yahweh being do not worship any other gods. So mm-hmm. this is about the fifth century BCE, we think. And then the Israelites also told, you know, not to make an image of anything, you know, anything that's in the heavens. If you're being told not to do something, kind <laughs> of implies you're it.
1: that you're doing it.
2: But we also have other stories, um, some of which are, you know, there's a, a priest called Micah uh, in the book of Judges who makes a, an image of Yahweh, um, fine. Hmm. You know, we've got Jeroboam, one of the kings, that, an early king of Israel, who makes um, golden bull statues um, it by you know, by implication by, that they're meant to be Yahweh. The book of Hosea mm-hmm. has Yahweh saying, why did these people make a statue of me shaped like an animal, like a bull? I don't like it. Um, so, so is that the golden calf thing too? Is that... It is the golden calf ah, thing, yeah. Right. So the two stories are, mm-hmm. are linked. Mm-hmm. So and in other words, so sometimes they had human-shaped bodies, but like the god Baal, he had a human-shaped body, but he could also take the form of a bull. Um, and that seems to be the case with Yahweh as well. We've got lots of bull figurines that suggest that these could have been Yahwistic, they could have been Baal, they could have been Ale, mm. but quite normal. But yeah, the idea, if you're being told you shall not make an image and worship it kind of suggests that that's exactly what people yeah. are doing.
1: Well, it, it seems natural anyway, doesn't it? I mean, how do you worship something that's not there, particularly if everybody else, you know, or the, the general way of worship, yeah. you have some kind of an idol or at least, or at least something to kind of focus your, your mind on. Whence, yeah. Once I you're mean, I think that. this
2: is when I was writing the book, I mean, obviously it's called God and Anatomy um, and it's about the early story of God, but told through his body. Mm. Um, mm. But as I was writing it, I just, I was so struck by the fact that, you know, we are our bodies, you know, mm-hmm. this whole kind of this very sort of Cartesian division um, of the, you know, that we are somehow the body is this kind of fleshy vessel or a shell for the actual person or the soul mm-hmm. or the mind or the intellect mm-hmm. or whatever is bollocks. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the technical term. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> um, you know, we are our bodies that like, we experience the world by by sensory bodily means. And I think how do you have a relationship with an, a non-existent or an invisible, mm, mm. immaterial, otherworldly being? How do yeah. you have that relationship? And I think a lot of the reason why so many cultures all over the world, why they imagine their gods to have bodily forms, whether human shaped or animal shaped or, or kind of hybrid shaped, is because it's hard to have a social relationship with something that is disembodied or, or incorporeal. How do you have that and that's mm-hmm. what religion is about. It's about having a social relationship with the otherworldly, whether it's a deified ancestor or, you know, or a, or a god. And I think that's why the body language in the Hebrew Bible is so interesting is because that very bodiliness of Yahweh enables him to be a social deity, to mm-hmm. interact with his worshippers and with his people. Um And that's what makes it, you know, it it literally kind of, you know, brings to life this kind of, this relationship, it embodies this relationship. Um, So, yeah, it's not extraordinary from a history of religion's point of view that that God would have a body. Of course he does. And obviously Christians then decide that God does indeed Mm. have a body, but this is the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. Mm -hmm. So even that idea, it's hard to get away from it. You know, you have to have something, something bodily to engage with.
0: Wow. I mean, do... Uh, you said you mentioned earlier like you know archaeology is not always a great help with these things so have have we found anything like any little idol that's that's yahweh shaped or a coin or something that shows an image do we have something
2: yeah i mean there are lots of figurines um but figurines don't come with a label Mm. on you know they don't kind of say like (laughs) made in the uk or this is yahweh or whatever um so that's obviously annoying um We have lots of figurines, some of which could well be Yahweh. It's one of those things that's always debated by scholars. Um, But yeah, in the 5th century BCE, when um, what we now, what what was ancient Judah, the Kingdom of Judah with its capital Jerusalem, when that was a part of the Persian Empire, we have coins um, kind of appearing at that time. And a certain coin that's now in the British Museum has um, a picture of an image of an enthroned male deity with a nice, neat beard, very muscular, kind of buff looking so, chest. So, like and he's this. Sitting on okay, a, yeah. Very <laughs> much like that. Um, but he and he's sitting on a winged wheel. Um, now, this is quite common iconography for a high-status deity across you know the eastern Mediterranean. But what's interesting is that it's got in Aramaic, which was the kind of the common language at the time, it's got um, the word Yahweh written on oh. it. Hmm. So, wow. That's that seems pretty clear. Now. Wow. Yeah, that we have there an image of, of Yahweh. Now, it may be that this coin was recycled and it was originally a different god and Yahweh's been mm. put on it. But even if that's the case, it wasn't problematic for people, you know, for people in Judah to be putting the name Yahweh on. They're, they're sort of, oh, yeah, this is our god. Oh, yeah. In Ezekiel, it says that Yahweh has a winged, wheeled throne. Oh, this is him. Yeah. This is Yahweh. Awesome. So, yeah, that's a really nice example, oh, cool. I think.
0: Well, Francesca this has been so fascinating thank you so much congratulations again on the book we encourage our listeners to run out and get it again it is called God and Anatomy and uh, I think they get into all the juicy bits too so you have to you have to read the whole thing Um, so yeah thank you again and thank you to Helen and to our listeners and we will see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine bye bye We hope you enjoyed the first episode of Season 2 of Biblical Time Machine. Remember to check out the Time Travelers Club, our exclusive club for fans of the show who want to get a little more involved. So remember, there is still time to get your questions in for John Cleese. We're going to be recording John Cleese's interview on September the 11th. So there's still time to join the Time Travelers Club Send us your questions and we will read them on air to Mr. John Cleese. Details are in the episode description. See you next time.